Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 41, 21 through 42, 17. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people in it, on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the habitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. 
I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Sacred City Church. We do welcome you. How are you guys doing today? Uh, thank you for honoring God's word and standing for that long. I honestly didn't realize how long that, that scripture was. Uh, and if you can pay attention to how long it was, you probably know how long you're going to be sitting today as we preach. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Alex Aguello. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City Church. Um, it's been a while since I've been up here filling the pulpit, which if you guys have been around here a while, you probably know what that means. That is a very long time to come up with jokes about Pastor Justin. <laughs> so I figured I would just take the first 10 minutes to do some of that. But then last week, Bryson did a very good job of it and kind of lit him up. So if we take what Bryson said last week and then Pastor Justin's own talking about his testosterone levels lately, I think we have enough to, to laugh about <laughs> for the year about Pastor Justin. So I won't do that, but I want to do something more serious. I love our pastor. He's a good friend of mine, so I love him in that way. But I love him for who he is and, and what he's done as a minister of the gospel even more so. And I think it's, it's very easy to take for granted what's happening here. Churches across our states are declining. Cities across those states are becoming more and more unchurched and non-Christian. And as a response to that, many churches are abandoning orthodoxy, they're becoming less and less biblical, and they're no longer preaching the gospel. But what's happening here? A church that is Bible-loving, Bible-preaching, gospel-centered, and missional is flourishing, and it's growing, and that's happening in an environment that's becoming more and more antagonistic to all of that happening. Now, that's by God's grace that that's happening, and, and those of you that are members have played a big part in that, but much of the grace that God has given has been given through leadership, and much of the leadership is owed to Pastor Justin. I want to read something really quick from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones that I think applies here. Jones says, The general history of the world surely demonstrates quite plainly that the men who truly made history have been men who could speak, who could deliver a message, and who could get people to act as the result of the effect they produced upon them. Our pastor is one of those men. And I'm thankful to God for him. And I hope all of you, as you look back at 2019 and see all the things that God's done for you, that you are thankful for, that this church and our pastor would be on that list. His mom asked me to say all that. <laughs> Kidding. 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 <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm a little out of my comfort zone today. We are not in the middle of a series. We're not in the middle of a book that we're preaching through like I'm used to when I fill the pulpit. So I had the freedom to actually choose what I preached on today, which is more difficult than I anticipated. But 
being that I've been studying the book of Isaiah for much of this year, I thought what we would do this morning is take us through a couple chapters from Isaiah's book to show us a piece of what the word of God tells us about worship and challenge us a little there. Here's how this passage breaks down and the sermon will follow the same pattern. Number one, we see what God's people should reject. Number two, we see what God's people should receive. And number three, we see how God's people should respond. Reject, receive, respond. Let me pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father, it is a joy to be here this morning. It is always a joy to come together on a Sunday morning and worship you with our church family, Lord, with the body of Christ. Now we ask that you'd be present here this morning, that you'd take over this place, Lord, that you'd be with me as I speak, that you'd be with these guys as they listen, Lord. Do what you want to see happen, Lord. Change us through the preaching of your word. We ask this every single week, Lord, that you would move mightily through this Sunday gathering, through the preaching of your word, and we ask the same thing on this last weekend that we have together in 2019. So please do that for us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So this probably seems a little weird to say, but one of the things that I am the most thankful for about Sacred City is how much we talk about sin, because it's a lot. Now, that's probably not as weird for the people in this room. Many of us know the importance of talking about sin, but outside this room in the culture, and if I were preaching at many other churches in our cities even, that statement would make many people uncomfortable. So much of preaching and just ministry in general is now just motivational or empowering in nature, or it's sentimental. Let's rub your back nonstop to make you feel better type stuff. Maybe necessary sometimes. But if you actually read the Bible, not only would you be avoiding much of it, what it says, if you rarely or never talk about sin, but those of you that, those that you are ministering to are going to have a very difficult time getting to know themselves and the God that deserves their worship. Well, if at Sacred City, we are going to be what I claimed we were in the intro, which is a Bible-loving, Bible-preaching, gospel-centered missional church, then there shouldn't be a Sunday that goes by where we aren't talking about sin in some way. What it is, what leads to it, what it leads to, or how we actually fight against it. So the piece of this category, the sin category, that I want to discuss this morning with our first point is idol worship. Again, outside this room, probably a weird topic, but it's an extremely important topic for the Christian because it's intimately connected with sin. And in one sense, if you asked me what I think is wrong with the world today, I could say and be accurate in saying that idol worship is what is wrong with the world today. That would go well with John Piper's claim that missions exist because worship doesn't. True worship doesn't exist because idol worship exists. And we see how our God deals with that in our passage. We are starting in the middle of the chapter and even in the, the, the middle of the book, so that's not ideal, right? I, I wish it wasn't that way. And God willing, one day we'll preach through the whole book of Isaiah so we can learn more about the context. But for our purposes today, What's important for us to know is at least this much. Isaiah was a prophet, one who spoke for God to his people, the Israelites, about 2,700 years ago. Much of his work was charging God's people to trust their God, 
which they were pretty terrible at doing. So these people were going in and out of captivity because when their trust waned, their worship would wane as well. And that would result in them turning from worshiping God to worshiping other idols. Many Christmas hymns describe these people. The lyrics, o Com, the lyrics in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel say, to free your captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. That's where we find God's people in our passage today. They are in exile in Babylon, and they are there because God has judged them for turning to idol worship. One last thing before we get to our passage. While his people are in exile, God uses prophets like Isaiah to constantly be speaking truth to his people so that those who have ears to hear can know and trust and remember who God is and what he's like. Why would he do that? Well, because he is about his glory. And he demands to be worshipped. And if these people are going to live in a way that brings him glory and brings him worship, then they have to know who he is and what he's like. But what's important to know about this is that this isn't a tyrant that we're dealing with. One who's super prideful and super insecure and just needs other people that are lesser than him just to worship him. The reason he is about his glory and wants all of creation, including those created in his image, to bring him glory and to be the one they worship is because he knows that that is what is best for creation and his people. It's actually what is the answer to the problems of this world. So with that, let's finally get to our text to see this. This is God speaking through Isaiah to his people as they're in Babylonian exile. We're going to start in chapter 41, verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, an abomination is he who chooses you. We see here that God intervenes for his people, but it's probably not how we would think he would intervene. God doesn't get involved in this situation by showing up as a consuming fire and wiping the Babylonians out like he's done in the past for his people. Earlier in Isaiah, another nation, the Assyrians, come to Jerusalem to conquer the Israelites, but God just wipes out around 200,000 of them while they're sleeping to protect his people. Crazy scene, but he doesn't do that here. Why? Because their oppressor is not the problem. He's done that before. He's helped them deal with the Egyptians and the Assyrians and many other nations, but he knows there's a bigger problem than their oppressors. Their oppressors are basically a formality for God. God's people are in exile and not free because God judged them. This wasn't some random thing that happened when one day the Babylonians decided to take over the world. God made this happen and very easily could reverse what he's done if he wanted to, but what does he do instead? He wants to get to the root of the problem. And how he chooses to do that would make those who want to over-spiritualize problems very upset. 
He chooses reason. He wants his people to use their minds to understand the problem. He does this because he knows how he created his people. He knows that he created them in a way that in order to get to their affections, which is how we change, something has to affect us. He first has to go through their minds. So he sets up this cosmic courtroom, we might say, and says, okay, idols, you who wants to go after the hearts and minds of my people, show me what you got. He challenges the false gods of the world to show their power. What's he doing here? God isn't giving legitimacy here to other gods. He knows they aren't real. So what he's doing here is not for him, but for his people. He's wanting them to listen in on this confrontation so that they can see the futility of the idols that they create. God says, okay, if you really think that these false idols have the power that you ascribe to them, then I will go to them myself and I'll see what they got. I'll see what they can show me. He simply asks these idols to do God-like things. Tell us why stuff has happened. Tell us what's going to happen in the future. He says, do good or shoot, do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified by your power. After hearing and seeing no response from these idols, he's had enough of playing their games and says, behold, you are nothing. God powerfully shows us that idols are nothing and then tells us idols are nothing. He then moves on from questioning the opposition to making a case for himself as the one with power to further prove the lack of power in idols. Let's read verse 25 and 27. I stirred up the one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads on clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right? There was no one who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. These verses describe God as the only one who can and has predicted anything in the future. They show his sovereignty in this world and his absolute control, even over events that seem totally disconnected with his purposes, like Cyrus coming to power in Persia, the next great world power after Babylon. The one from the north here in these verses is Cyrus. And his desire to take over the world led to him in Persia conquering Babylon in 539 B.C., around 150 years after Isaiah was living, which shows us that Isaiah was speaking to God's people from a vision that God gave him about their future. This vision came to be. It's a historical fact and great apologetic for us to show us that God really is who he says he is. Cyrus eventually, by God's command, released the Israelites from, his, from exile, bringing them back to freedom bringing them back so they could rebuild the temple and worship him properly. God finishes his dismantling of the power of idols in verses 28 and 29 with proclaiming that there is no one above him, no one that can counsel him. And not only that, but these idols that his people run to are in fact not real, but a delusion. They're fake, empty, worthless. Can we hear what our God is saying? 
I hope our ears are open. As Christians, we are called to mortify our sin, to kill it. A huge piece of that is identifying what leads us into that sin. We need to know our idols. We need to be asking, what has our affections? What's pulling on our heartstrings? Is it the God of pleasure? The God that leads us to choose to look at pornography or have sex outside of marriage or to eat far too much food, drink far too much alcohol, watch far too much TV? Is it the God of comfort? The God, leads us, the God that leads us to stay in our own comfort zone of our family, our work, our social media, and never engage in a missional community, meet our neighbors, actually do the hard work of real relationships with real people instead of digital relationships with people's profiles? Is it the God of peace? The God that leads us to choose to never step into anything where suffering is involved. Again, avoid MC because it might bring stress that we don't have time for. Avoid people who rob us of our peace, even though God might have them in our life to show them what he is like. Avoid giving generously because holding on to our money and our time is what we believe truly brings us peace. Is it the God of success? The God that leads us to choose to make all of life about our success or our kids' success because we aren't, if we aren't successful in this world, are we really worth anything at all? Financial success, athletic, academic, social success, which is it? Which idol or idols are we currently worshiping? Let's not lie to ourselves and say that they're not there. If we do that, then this passage does nothing for us and we dishonor God. We will miss what our God wants to show us and tell us, which is this. He says, God of pleasure, God of comfort, God of peace, God of success, and any other God that people, run, that people might run to, behold, you are nothing. You're a delusion. You're impotent. My people, if they truly are my people, reject you. That brings us to our second point. We move on from chapter 41 and enter into chapter 42 with this change comes a different atmosphere. We leave tension. We leave this courtroom. And now I think we can imagine just God speaking to his people with what we would call around here a peaceful prophetic presence. We get to be introduced to what we should receive. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. What we see here is one who Isaiah calls God's servant. God's answer to his people rejecting idols was not only him telling them that these idols are worthless, but also him telling them that he's sending someone not to reject, but to receive. He wants his people to take their gaze off of the idols that they're worshiping, that they've been focused on, and put their gaze onto his servant. Super important. I think many of us probably are pretty good at recognizing our sin. 
maybe even know what it is we are worshiping instead of God. And we probably know this first part of taking our gaze off of that idol. But our way of taking our gaze off of that idol is by just trying to keep our eyes closed. We see what we are doing and tell ourselves it's wrong, feel very guilty about it, maybe even beat ourselves up over it. But what we turn to is our own strength to keep our eyes closed. God shows us here, that's not going to work. I will tell us here, that's very exhausting and can destroy us. Listen to Isaiah here. It's not just taking our gaze off of our idols by closing our eyes. It's taking our gaze off of our idols and putting our gaze on to his servant. That's how we defeat idols. God helping us. That's how we move closer to true worship. Now, some of us might be saying, okay, we get it. Turn from our idols and turn to God's servant. But who is God's servant? And how in the world is that going to help us? These verses that we just read make up what's called a servant song. And it's pointing to the one who's going to come in the future. One who's going to bring change, not just for God's people, but to the entire world. In this song, Isaiah is showing us a contrast between what God's servant is like compared to what Cyrus of Persia is like. Remember, back in 4125, Cyrus, like all tyrannical leaders, trampled on other leaders. He destroyed nations that were weaker than his nation, treated them like the potter treats clay, did whatever he wanted with them. Rulers like Cyrus throughout history bring injustice to the world. But look at what Isaiah says about God's servant. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Where the mighty pagan kings of history all brought injustice to Israel and other nations, God's servant is going to do the opposite. We see part of that here. Verses 2 and 3 give us our first look into this servant, who this servant is, and what he's going to do. The rest of verse 2 a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will, faint, he will faithfully bring forth justice. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see a quote of this passage. Let's go to Matthew 12, verse, 25, verse 15 through 20. This should be on the screen, or you can turn to it in your Bibles. This is after Jesus just battled the Pharisees about doing good on the Sabbath. It says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles." He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. This tells us that our servant is Jesus, and that he's come to change things. He's come to bring healing to the nations, to make things new. So we've had one of our questions answered, right? Who is the servant? It's Jesus. And we've touched a little on how that's going to help us. But in order for us to fully understand why turning our gaze to Jesus changes it, what we, it is we worship, we have to understand this word 
justice. Now, I very easily could do a whole sermon on biblical justice, but for time's sake, I want to let Dr. Ray Ortland give a description from his commentary on this passage to show us a picture of it. We should have this quote. He said, God has a blueprint for human existence. He knows how human beings in human society can be at their best. He knows how to make us happy and fulfilled. This word translated justice includes within its scope all our longings for a better life and a better world. A just world to Isaiah is human society as God means it to be, with no corrupting idolatries. When we see slums and poverty and oppression and illiteracy and pollution and human misery in all of its forms, do we have the prophetic eyes to discern the meaning of it? These massive disorders prove that we are arranging human life according to idolatrous ideals. That's why we always end up shoving each other into the ground. What's he saying? He's saying that injustice, according to the Bible, is not just describing illegal acts. It's not just about political dysfunction. It's actually a spiritual evil. It, at its core, is a denial of God, who he is and what he's like. The primary reason there is so much injustice in the world, the reason everything seems so dark and broken and lost, is because we are living in a world where idols are worshipped and not God. So if we want justice, we have to worship the one true God, and that first means turning to his servant. You see, the way God changes this world is by changing people, and the way God changes people is not by just telling us that we did something wrong. That what we're doing is bad. That our lives don't please him. He does that, and that should be all we need if we truly love God with all we are. But because we don't and can't this side of heaven, he gives us more. On top of showing us that our ways are not like his, but wicked and unsatisfying, he gives us something much better and shows us that something is beautiful in everything we long for. When we can truly turn by grace to Christ, through faith, it changes us in a way that leads us to see God and his ways as what we really want, as what we really desire. Again, he should be enough. He is enough. And one day we will fully understand how he is enough and worship him perfectly just for who he is. But until then, God doesn't stop there. He gives us a world to enjoy. And tells us that that world is best enjoyed when the people are in it, are worshiping Christ. And when that's happening, we live differently in that world, which makes an impact on this world. It makes it look more like God means it to be. That creates a virtuous cycle. We behold the glory of Christ that changes us from one degree of glory to the next. We then take our glory into this dark world, which makes it less dark, makes it more like God means it to be. We then see that and enjoy that world more and more, and that makes us turn our gaze back to Christ, to his glory, in gratitude and praise. Now, although all of that is true and good and beautiful, I don't want us to hear me saying that we by our own assertion, can fully make this world into the way God means it to be. We aren't the answer to the major problem of this world. I also don't want us to hear me saying that only the world needs dealt with and not people. 
People are very much a problem. The story of scripture tells us how Christ, the servant in Isaiah 42, is the answer to these problems in two major ways. In order for everything to be made right, there has to be a redeemer and a restorer. In order for God's world to be made right, people have to live in a way that he wants them to live. But because of the fall and God's curse upon mankind, this could not happen. Sin, the world, and the devil are too powerful for humans to overcome on their own. God's people who can't image him properly because of the sin in their lives need that sin to be dealt with. They need to be wiped clean and they need a righteousness that they can't provide on their own. Their sin needs to be paid for with blood being shed, with death because that was the penalty God put on it. They need righteousness because God is perfectly holy, therefore can't be around anything that is not. So because of this, God could have chosen to bring death to all people because of their sin and because of their lack of righteousness and would have been perfectly just, perfectly within his character to do that. But instead, he sent a servant as a substitute. What the Bible calls a propitiation, one who could live a life that was perfectly lived in the way that God means life to be lived then sacrifice himself to the pay for the sins of the world, of the people who couldn't worship God the way he wanted to be worshiped. That's the redemption part. Justice being brought to the nations. What's left is the restoration part. A part that's hard for many of us to believe. At least believe, at least believe in a way that changes the way we live now. The Bible tells us that one day everything is going to be made perfectly right. As Christians, we are to read that, believe it by faith, and then live from that faith. That's hard. We have been trained to be short-term people, haven't we? Quick fixes are so normal to us that it's hard to see the long game. It's hard to actually find joy in the ordinary stuff of life in all of its boringness and monotony. We want to spice up our life much of the time, which results in idolatry. We do this because, again, we don't see God in his ways clearly. We are blinded to how good his ways are. But in the beginning of chapter 42 here, God is presenting a line in the sand, so to speak. On one side of the line, there's those who profess Christianity. They say they love Jesus, think he's a great guy, but he's more obligatory to them than satisfying. And they're interested in the church that he has set up because it's in alignment with the traditions of their family or gives them a great social outlet. But for them, it's necessary to keep Jesus and his church at arm's length. He can't come in and take over their whole life and get them off of their terms because if he or his church ask anything of them that might rub up against their idolatries that they have in their life, then they need an escape route. Their pride is too strong to give up their idolatries. On the other side of that line, pride is given up and humility wins. There are no preconditions to following Christ. These people are willing to let Christ be over all of their life. They're willing to do whatever he asks of them, giving God their allegiance, proclaiming that salvation belongs to the Lord alone. Instead of pride, there is worship. 
So what side of the line are we on? As we move into 2020, will we continue to keep Jesus at arm's length? Will we step over that line but make sure that at least one of our arms are still back on the other side so we can hold on to whatever it is we need to worship in addition to Jesus? Or will we jump far over that line, rejoicing that none of us is left over on the other side? That's what God asked of his people. In verses 5 through 9, he gives some insight into why it would be good to choose his side of the line. These verses can show us why he can be trusted with our salvation, with being freed from our idolatries, and given a world that we all want. Let's read verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God is the all-powerful creator, and he says there is work that needs to be done. God's world that he created for his glory has fallen. It's in bondage, and that has to change. All the way back in Isaiah, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, God tells us how that work is going to be done. He and his Christ will do it. Christ will be a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. He will make those who can't see who God is and what he is like finally see. Why should we believe this? Because it's the creator and sustainer of all things who says it. It's the one who said that he's going to flood the earth and did it. Said he's going to give a hundred-year-old Abraham a child and did it. Said he would deliver his people from Egypt and did it. Said he would give his people the promised land and did it. And for the Christian, how can we read verse 6? We can say, God said he was going to give his servant as a covenant for the people and then look to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ for proof that he did it. Why do we doubt him with anything? Why do we doubt that he's going to make this world the way that it should be? He won't leave it or us where we're at. He will never stop. The God of the universe who deserves all glory and honor and praise doesn't get it from us, but instead of leaving us to figure it out, he pursues us with his love and will love us until we finally get it. That's amazing. Verse 8 says he won't give up his glory and praise to anything else. So even if we give it to anything else, God will eventually win our allegiance. He will get his glory back. He will change us over time so that we eventually ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And when that happens, we will be as we should be. Our joy will be as full as it possibly could be. Do we believe this? Verse 9 ends this section on the servant with God charging us to believe it. Again, God says, behold. He's saying, I need you to put your gaze on what I'm about to say. The former things have come to pass. This is him saying that what he told his people was going to happen, happened. Therefore, believe me when I tell you of the things to come. Christian, 
We have too much that has been revealed to us in this book and too much that has been revealed to us in God's son to doubt him. Don't put your trust and your hope in any other. Put it in the only one who deserves it and the only one who can make you right and full of joy. Let's close with our final point. How should a Christian respond to receiving Christ? When God's people do that, when you and me do that, give up all of our Jesus plus whatever else we think is going to make us happy type of worship, turn to Christ alone and worship a battle is won. And when a battle is won, it calls for music. It calls for song. We see that in verse 10. (coughs) Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. That should be the number one thing on our 2020 resolution list, shouldn't it? Singing the Lord a new song. Not the old one that we've been singing, a better one, a greater one. What does this mean? This singing Isaiah calls us to is referring to the way that we live. It's a call to live a life that is lived for the Lord. Verse 11 continues this, but now invites not just God's people, but the whole world. Verse 11, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. This is God sending out the invitation for all across the lands, all across his world, to cross over that line in the sand and join his worshipers. In the middle of this charge, Isaiah gives us to sing a new song. He can't get away from showing us yet another reason to worship God. Verse 13 and 14, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. This shows us the type of rescuer Christ is. He came down like a warrior invading enemy-held territory to rescue his people from themselves, the enemy, and the idols of this world, but also like a woman in labor who gives everything they have to bring life into this world, Christ suffers to the point of giving up his life to bring new life to this world, to bring new life to his people, shows his passion for us, not just to bring us to heaven, but so that we would see that and glorify and worship him with our lives. As that is happening, as God is doing that in us, we are becoming more and more fit for what Isaiah tells us next. Verse 15, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do, and I do not forsake them. God is telling us that he's going to make the whole world new. 
He's going to change creation, and he's going to change the way people see it. He's going to guide them into seeing it clearly, see it for all of its beauty and goodness. He's doing that right now in his people. Those who have been united with Christ and given the Holy Spirit are having their eyes opened more and more. Their eyes are seeing God more and more clearly. Their songs are becoming more and more new. Their worship is being more and more focused on the one true God. These are the ones who have stepped over that line. Verse 17 tells us what happens to those who don't step over that line. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are gods. If we want to hold on to our idols, continue with this Jesus plus type of worship, God says we'll be put to shame. Sacred City Church, there are people in this room right now, people listening online right now, that are verse 17 people. Please don't assume they're not. Please take this more seriously than that. We don't want to be put to shame by God. Christians don't want anybody to be put to shame by God. That's the battle we are in. Our lives aren't just about protecting ourselves and our families from the dangers of this world. They are about fighting against what dishonors God in this world. Our new songs are the weapons we bring to the battle. Are we willing to fight? The lives we live as they honor God and submit to Christ are what God uses to win the battle. God uses our lives and our words to show and share who he is and what he is like and what he has done to save the world so that those who don't know him can come to know him. What's this life look like? Of course, a life that's full of Bible reading, prayer, church membership, the sacraments, but as I close, hear this. Men, every time you go to work and work your butt off to bring home the bacon, to provide for you and for your family, and enjoy serving the world with your gifts, a battle is won. Every day you choose to sit down with your family and pray with them, eat with them, talk with them, encourage them, appreciate them, show them what a godly man is like and enjoy them, a battle is won for the Lord. Mom's in here every time you work your butt off to get meals made, to keep the house clean, to do what you can to provide financially if that's a need for your family, to take the time when you are physically exhausted to help your kids with homework, to do everything you can to make your home an oasis of peace for your family. A battle is won. Christian, every time you serve on a Sunday, tithe to the church, show up at your MC's mission night, do something creative, show hospitality to visitors in your home. All of these are battles that are being won. They're examples of living a life in obedience to God. They aren't just normal things of life. They are, but they're much bigger, much more important. Let's start seeing them that way. They are like bombs being dropped on the kingdom of darkness, which are reminders to that darkness that light is going to win, that light has already won. This is the response of the Christian, of the one who has rejected idols and received Christ. 
who has been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Let this be our new song as we move into 2020. Let us be a church that is so full of the love of Christ that the city around us can't help but notice how we live and want to know who it is that we worship. That's how we'll see this world change into a world God means it to be in a world that we all want to see. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this time that we've had together. It is good to be with our family. It is good to be under the preaching of God's word. It is good to communicate and teach your word, Lord. All of these are blessings. Father, Bible, we don't want it just to be something we hear. We don't be, want this to just be something where we sit down here for 45 minutes or so and then it leaves our ears, it leaves our minds, and we go and live a life that's not honorable to you, Lord. We want your word to change us. We want preaching to change us, Lord. We want to be people, as I said at the end, that the world can look in at and see that we're living differently and wonder who it is that we serve, wonder who it is that we worship. We all want to see this world be a better place. We all want to see justice be brought to the nations. We know you've already started that work. We know you've sent your son to do the most important thing in that work, and that's to set us free from our sin, to give us forgiveness, to give us new life, to allow us to be born again so that we can live a life for you and not for us. Help us now as we leave. Take these truths that were communicated today and change us with them for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of this city. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.